Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back with the final re-record. Is I that believe correct? it's the final re-record. And where are we going? I think it should be prostitution. Yeah, so um, it was called early prostitution and... You know, I was like, oh, I wonder what that was. So I, <laughs> so I, so I checked, and I think I'm fairly confident this is the uh, the Vincent Krupe episode because I did not find a Vincent Krupe episode in the archive. So I'm hoping that's what this is, or otherwise we'll have two of these. Well, if I recall, the early prostitution didn't really have to do with the mafia. It just kind of set the tone for prostitution. Well, if that's the case, then I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, if we don't have a Vincent Krupe episode, then we don't have a Vincent Krupe I didn't episode. see one in there, and you know, unless it was called something funny, but <clears throat> I didn't see one. So that's what I did. That's, All right. That's well, what well, we let's got. go with it, man. Go with it. All right. So we got Vincent Krupe, who is the head of Vice, which is like the fancy way of saying prostitution, in... Milwaukee in the 1930s. So when they, whenever they say vice, is that's referring to be to prostitution or gambling? It's anything that's like sinful behavior. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I never knew that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So take her away. Yeah. So so Krupe, uh he's he's the this guy who runs these brothels on uh, East Water Street in Milwaukee. Uh, he's a relative of the Guadalabene family. He's also distantly related to the Aliotos, the Tarantinos, the Balestrieris. So he's, you know, he's one of those guys. Very well connected. Very well connected, yeah. Uh, he came to America in 1907. He lived in St. Louis for a few years. Then he came to Milwaukee where things, you know, really got going. Uh, he married a woman named Mary Berent, who, if you cannot tell by her name, not Italian. It was not a church wedding, which would be normal. It was uh, a civil wedding. And their witnesses were an attorney and a deputy sheriff. So, again, not normal. Because more often than not, if you're a mob guy, your best man is like a mob guy. That's Mm. normally how this works. So very suspicious that instead of that, he's got, you know, an attorney and a deputy sheriff. So I don't know if that means anything, but it it stands out to me. But do do you know definitively that this guy was actually a mafia guy, or is it? I kinda... do not know that definitively. Like we cannot connect him to the point where he's handing over money to these guys, but he knows them. He's related to them. Um, it would be very strange for him to be allowed to operate without them, you know, okaying it. But yeah, he's he's definitely a weird outlier 
on, on how that works. Yeah, so on paper, he listed his job as truck driver, but that isn't really accurate. <laughs> <laughs> like so many of them are. Yeah, so, you know, he has these, these brothels. I don't know if it didn't uh, go well for his marriage or, or what, but uh, he ended up getting divorced not long after getting married, uh, and actually not very cool about it, because she was uh, in a long-term hospital facility for tuberculosis when he divorced her. She probably wasn't too thrilled about that. <laughs> Could be wrong. Maybe she was thrilled about that, but uh, I get the impression that he more or less dumped her at that point. She got sick and said, okay, I'm going to move on to the next one, basically. Yep. yep. So he gets remarried uh, to another you know, non-Italian woman. This one actually from Appleton, Wisconsin. Weird. Yeah. Um, again, you know, for the justice of the peace, so not a church wedding. Uh, strangely, on the uh, wedding registry or, uh, you know, wedding certificate, he listed his job as unemployed. I guess it's better than saying truck driver when you're not a truck driver, <laughs> but it's not really true either. He did this for years and years, but uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of times he made the newspaper. So he apparently was really good at not making a big deal out of this, even though he's got a string of these uh, these brothels on East Water Street in Milwaukee, which for people who don't know Milwaukee, you should if you're listening to this. But if you don't, I mean, it's kind of right downtown. <laughs> His fall kind of comes in 1930. Uh, after reports that Krupe was responsible for starting fires on East Water Street to scare off competition from other brothels in the area, detectives raided his place on East Water on October 10th. He was arrested for running the brothel and released on $750 bond. A trial was set. Four women were charged with being inmates, which is the polite way of saying prostitutes. Uh, and uh, another place that he ran was also raided. The Vice Squad actually raided five establishments that same day and arrested 13 persons. Vincent Krupe was arrested again the next night. He paid his bail and was arrested again the next night. Um, and some of the same women were arrested with him the very next night. <laughs> he told the police, you know, hey, um, you know, technically, I'm not really running a brothel here because... I don't pay the women. Like, yeah, they use my place. <laughs> but they're they're basically independent contractors. They show up. They do their business. I mean, sometimes I'll help them pay their bail or whatever. But I'm not actually giving them any money. <laughs> um, which is, you know, I guess, that didn't work. But, I mean, interesting point. Arrested for helping him run... Uh, these brothels was his nephew, Frank Legalbo, who is very much a mob guy uh, and would grow, go on to be a very uh, big deal down the line. Following these raids, a shakeup went down at the police headquarters. Uh, the police chief ordered Detective Bert Stout removed from the head of the vice squad and placed on regular night duty. He had neglect of duty charges filed against him and was to be put on trial within 48 hours. Stout was alleged to have played favorites and protected Krupe in the past and was accused of telling the district attorney, lay off Krupe, he's a good fellow. Besides, he's going to move anyway. I don't know, I don't know about that one, but the chief of police spoke to the press. In the 20 years that Detective Stout has been connected with the vice details, he made the acquaintance of many underworld people. 
obtaining information from them which greatly aided the department in arresting other criminals. However, in reciprocating, he failed to use good judgment, extending many unnecessary favors. To permit a house of ill fame to operate merely because a lead might be obtained that would enable the police to arrest other criminals is not, in my judgment, good police work. These vice spots will be stamped out. Uh, so hold up, hold that yeah. right there. Yep. So basically what they were saying was he was in trouble because he was letting things happen with the intent of getting further into an investigation to make an arrest. Is, yeah. Is that more or less what you're saying? Yeah, the way I read that is um, basically Krupe is giving him the names of other brothel owners and the detective is like, oh, cool, I'll go over there and arrest them. And he's letting so in, so in exchange for being told where these other guys are, he keeps letting him go. Gotcha. Which you know is is a no no. Like is a, it's not a terrible idea, but but essentially what happens is you're helping this guy run his business. <laughs> yes, and you're also enabling him to have a monopoly at at a certain point because eventually you're going to arrest all the other brothels and only have him left. Yes. Uh, so five vice squad officers were transferred out of the squad. New officers were brought in. The detectives who had recently done the raids were not even members of the vice squad, but they were now made members of the vice squad <laughs> because apparently they actually knew what they were doing. Things were kind of moving around in there. On October 18th, the police board met in the safety building, which is just the police headquarters. I don't know why it's called the safety building, but that's what they called it. To hear testimony on Bert Stout, brothel madam Anna Joyner testified that Stout persecuted the small fry businesses like hers, while bigger shots like Krupe were given immunity. Her brothel on Water Street had been raided several times. Krupe was called to give testimony, but he failed to show up. Stout testified for over two hours. The board found him guilty of incompetence and neglect, and he was reduced in rank. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anna Joyner, the other brothel owner, actually ends up leaving Milwaukee, uh, and she sets up a new brothel in Plymouth, Wisconsin, near Sheboygan, uh, called the Club Royal. It's not really relevant to this story, but they scared her out of Milwaukee only for her to go somewhere else. (laughs) Krupe's sentencing hearing was in December 1930, He said he had no control over what the women did in his saloon. The back room where they offered their services was allegedly rented to a man named Joe Bello, who nobody seemed to know. The prosecution pointed out that Krupe's place had been raided 15 times before he was finally charged as the person running the place. Officers said they had watched his business, The Green Light, and saw Krupe there three or four times a week, but in every single raid, one of his women would take the rap and claim to be the keeper. So this was kind of the 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 thing that they did, is they'd do this rotation where somebody would say, oh yeah, I this is my place, and they'd keep saying a different person because it would keep the fines lower. Yeah, okay, I remember that. Yeah, it's a, it's a clever trick. I don't know if that would work anymore, <laughs> but it used to be that being fined as as an inmate, like a prostitute, is is relatively low. It's not a big fine, but actually running the place is a big deal. So if you just keep rotating it, 
Everybody just gets stuck with the smaller fines. Mm -hmm. During the raid, police found a switch under the bar that could be flipped when police arrived. The switch turned on a light in the back room and locked the doors, allowing the women to scurry out like rats. The police <laughs> chief testified that Krupe freely admitted that he ran the place and said the building was rented from a Dr. Eisenberg for $215 a month. He admits that he is the person who runs it. He owns the place, even though you know, he pays rent to somebody else. But that one particular room, he rents out to another guy. <laughs> so that's his story. I'm assuming that that strategy also didn't really hold up. It did not. Okay. The jury was 11 men and one woman, and they deliberated for 35 minutes. <laughs> not, not a whole long time. <laughs> and they found him guilty. So after being free for the last few months out on bail, he was carried off by the sheriff. The immigration inspector stepped forward and said that if Krupe was not a citizen, and he was not a citizen, deportation proceedings would begin immediately. The chief of police said, I hope the verdict will act as a warning to all the other vice mongers in the city. It will be the policy of the department to obtain warrants under the House of Ill-Fame statutes for, ever keep, for every keeper of a disorderly house arrested a second time. So my understanding of that is basically they're not going to let this rotation thing go on anymore. anymore. <laughs> it's like, we know who owns the place. Just go after who owns the place. Krupe was sentenced to three years in the House of Correction. And the House of Correction is like a step above the local jail, but a step below like state prison. prison. Okay. I don't know if that's still a thing or not, but that used to be like where you'd go if you weren't like a major, you know, we got to send you to Wapan. But you're going to be there longer than jail time. It almost sounds like kind of like a, what do, what do they call it? Like a blue collar criminal. They usually get sent to something a little bit better than, yeah, than say a murderer or something. Yeah, and and from what I can tell, the House of Correction is not like you're not being punished that badly. The judge at sentencing said, "Seldom has there been such a flagrant violation of the statutes as this one. It deserves the maximum punishment under the law." which is three years. Vincent's wife said, It is not Vincent who is suffering, but I and his child. If I had known what kind of place he was running, I never would have let him operate. Which, by the way, I don't happen to believe that she doesn't know. <laughs> uh, maybe she doesn't. I mean, I guess there's no reason she would have to know. But I find it suspicious that she hadn't heard anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, nobody... Ever came up to her and said, do you know your husband is operating a uh, yeah. brothel? Yeah, you know, like, for years now, he's been, like, one of the big brothel owners in town. Like, I think she would have caught on to that, but maybe not. While behind bars, he was allegedly allowed frequent trips to visit his wife, and she would sometimes visit him, bringing whiskey and sandwiches loaded with ketchup. There was always plenty of ketchup because Vincent liked his sandwiches really juicy. <laughs> Did, did that come out of the newspaper? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Journalists were awesome in these times. Yeah. Yeah. Except they didn't say ketchup. They said catsup. But I, I'm <laughs> saying ketchup because catsup's a stupid word. Uh, a former inmate later testified that he knew of at least one drinking party inside the prison that involved Vincent Krupe and some other Italian guys. Um, we'll return to these allegations in a little bit. Krupe's removal from Water Street was not enough for the Federated Church Women, who sent a scathing letter to District Attorney George Bowman accusing him of failure to use the Lindley Law for padlocking disorderly houses. 
the Lindley Law was basically, as it says, a place where you could padlock um, known brothels or people who were violating prohibition. You could actually shut down the actual business, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense. Instead of just finding the people being like, stop operating. Um, so they, the, the Federated Church women, not really thrilled that they didn't crack down even harder on these guys. The group had long been a strong influence, some would say a strong nuisance in Milwaukee, um, when they opposed corruption, vice, and were spearheading the dry movement, which at this point of the story were in prohibition, but these women had been pushing for prohibition for long like, before. Gotcha. Like, you know, being being anti prostitution, fine. But being anti-booze in Milwaukee? Ooh, <laughs> jerks. <laughs> District Attorney Bowman replied to the group. He said, Permit me to thank you for your little letter of trust and encouragement. He cited his involvement in the arrest and conviction of Krupe. He further pointed out that the Wickersham Report of January 1931 declared Milwaukee number one among American cities in the successful prosecution of vice. Now, this is something like I've known about forever. You know, since I first started looking at this, the Wickersham Committee and the Wickersham Report uh, came out, and like this was like a, a federal thing where Congress looked into prostitution across the country. And I know that Milwaukee was considered like really clean compared to other cities. Really, but I've never seen the actual report, and I would love to see this because I'd love to know like what they were looking into and how they made these determinations. But I've never actually seen the Wickersham report. Is it something you can get your hands on or is it something that they keep locked up in it? No, it's public, but it's like, it's weird because now when Congress releases a report, you go on Congress's website and it's a PDF file. Mm -hmm. But this is like a hundred years ago. (laughs) So So it's like in the congressional office, like in a dusty drawer. (laughs) So, it's like, yeah, you can get it, but it's not like they they mass produced copies of this for people to. I mean, maybe they did at the time, but I mean, they're not rarely around anymore. If they did, but of course, besides me, who would read it? <laughs> There's probably like five other people. That you know would how many jump people, all over like that. the government's printing like massive hundred page reports constantly. Nobody reads those. <laughs> uh, Krupe applied for a pardon from Governor LaFollette. Uh, He stressed that his wife and child were both American citizens, so it would be a burden for them to relocate to Italy if he was deported. So, you know, that's a a valid point. He argued that there was no clear evidence connecting him to the prostitution. Again, he's again saying this. And he raised that the room in the back of the saloon was rented by another man. It wasn't him. (laughs) And that man would have been in charge. He said, on top of all this, I'm a really good dad, so you should probably let me out. Uh, The pardon was denied. Krupe was released from the House of Correction after serving his full term, and then he was sent to the Milwaukee County Jail to await deportation. Uh, He was going to get deported, like, immediately after serving his time. Mm -hmm. Why you wouldn't just deport him instead of putting him in there for a couple years? I don't know. (laughs) Like... I think, like, as a taxpayer, you'd be like, let's just get this guy out of here. Yeah, yeah, If we're going to deport him anyways, we yeah. don't need to throw him in jail and waste a bunch of money. Yeah, like, oh, we're going to we're gonna feed him for three years before we <laughs> throw him out. Like, okay, whatever. But 
I mean, I don't make the rules. Whatever. Okay. Speaking to the press, Krupe said that deportation was going to be hard on him. I will be lost. I'm 39 years old. I left Italy when I was only a child. I can talk Italian okay, but I can't read or write it. That's next to impossible. I have done wrong, but I have served my time as other wrongdoers do. So I can't see why this extra punishment, being banished from what is my homeland, must be given me. It's just like fixing up a dose of poison for a man and then pouring in another bottle of poison on top of the first bottle of poison. <laughs> Krupe pointed out that his family was native to the state, as I said. We're all human beings, after all, and we will be lost over there. The only relative he claimed to know in Italy was an aunt who was now 74 years old and in poor health. Uh, but despite this, he was deported, and his wife and child joined him. I actually, to, to be fair, I think there's some decent points here. And of course, you know, the law is the law. And if you're not an American citizen, mm-hmm. you can get deported. Like, but it is it is a crappy situation. Like, when he came here as a child, he can't even really speak Italian or read or write it worth a crap. And then he's got to go live in Italy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> well, and just go live in a culture that... I mean, is very different from what yeah. he was used to, and every I mean, through 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 us life into a complete yeah. chaos, basically. Yeah, like I mean, I don't want to go on a tangent about like immigration laws because that's, you know, that's controversial and nobody likes that. But that I'm just saying, like, that's crappy. Like, if you did come over as a kid, and then like, oh, now you're gonna send me to a place that I don't even remember being from. <laughs> like, ouch. The thing Tough I find it, guy. It, the thing I find interesting about this, and maybe you you have a good answer to this, but I mean, how old is he when he gets thrown in jail? He's got to be in his thirties. Well, in right? his thirties, sure. Yeah. So if he came here as a kid, did they just really not have a process to get citizenship at this point in time? Or? They did. I mean, he could have done that, but but just it w- wasn't really like a mandatory thing, and they just kind of a lot of people just never did it. Is that? Yeah, that's really. That's pretty much it. So I don't know what the process is today, but back then there would be two steps. There would be your declaration of intent where you file this thing saying you want to be a citizen. And then there's a follow-up that you do later on, which is called naturalization, where you actually become a citizen. A lot of people didn't do either one, and a lot of people only did the first one. And the government really didn't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. Like, if you go back and you check, like, your great-great-grandparents, you know, whether they're, like, German or Dutch or, you know, whatever. Like, everybody around here is German and Dutch, but, you know, you got people come from everywhere. Right. Like, most of them didn't bother to actually do it. They just, like, bought farmland, and they were like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> and, like, as long as they stayed out of trouble, nobody did anything about it. And for generations after that, it didn't matter because even though maybe... Your, well, your parent was not a uh, a citizen. As soon as you were born in this country, they automatically make you a citizen. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, that's a lot of times how it works. People would come over, like, a couple would come over. They'd buy a farm or, you know, maybe not a farm, but in Wisconsin, it's generally a farm. And then, you know, they start having a bunch of kids to work the farm, and the kids are all citizens. So the parents are like, eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's, like, really, really common. Um, so I don't know at what point that changed where they actually 
really crack down on that? And you couldn't really be here without going through the process? I don't know. But it, for a very long time, it was, like, super loose. It just was, if you got into the country, you could yeah. stay here. Yeah, if you, get, if you got in and you had a job, like, good for you, you're here. So I don't know. I'm sure that, like... That's a really easy thing to look up, but I don't happen to know that answer. Mm. All right, so Krupe never returned to Milwaukee. As far as I know, he lived out his life in Sicily and, and was a nice, good family man and never did anything wrong again. But even though he left, this was not the last they would hear of him. Really? In Milwaukee. After he left, these rumors about what was going on in the House of Correction um, reached the county board, and they decided they were going to conduct a full investigation. So a former guard at the House of Correction brought in a diary that he kept, and he kept a record of his daily activities for the previous 10 years, so he's very thorough, and some of his entries were scandalous. The most outrageous episode was on December 31st, 1933, so New Year's Eve, when Vincent Krupe allegedly threw a wild party, complete with a female inmate giving a fan dance with the aid of two large fans. And here when we say fans, we're talking like the big round things you hold in your hand, not mm. like an electric fan. <laughs> with the aid of two large makeshift fans, the woman paraded around in the nude, challenging the men to get a glimpse of her body. But with her... Skillful use of the fans, they could see nothing. <laughs> the next day, guards had to clean up 42 smashed windows and a dozen broken benches and chairs. So it was a good party it from was, the sounds of it. Was it was a pretty good party. <laughs> yeah. uh, when interviewed by the newspaper, a former inmate said that he would smuggle in love letter, or he would smuggle love letters, sorry, out of the prison for Krupe in the prison laundry, sometimes with $300 rolled up inside. In exchange, Krupe provided him with an inexhaustible supply of liquor and tobacco. Guards were paid $10 to smuggle the letters out, and packages would come in without inspection. One package included a crispy chicken, a ham, <laughs> some candy, and several pints of liquor. The inmate brought the package to the warden's attention, but later found the bootleggers in the, in the detention area were having a feast. The prisoner said he would write House of Corruption on the laundry baskets as a joke. <laughs> the inmate was a trustee in solitary confinement, and one of his jobs was to carry a knife on him to cut down prisoners who tried to hang themselves. He did succeed in cutting down a few men over the years, but he did fail... With two of them. So, I don't know what's going on in this place. But in one section of the prison, people were drunk having a party. In another section, people were hanging themselves. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> um, a famous bootlegger from Green Bay, who was in the uh, House of Correction, known as King George, he appeared before the grand jury. Uh, he had a large diamond ring on his left hand. He testified that the head of the prison took him to the Northland Hotel in Green Bay on a visit, and they had a party there with several <laughs> other Green Bay residents. The men drove there in a county car and stayed overnight. Their cover story was that the travel was so King George could get a deed from a safety deposit box that he needed in Green Bay. But really, they were just having a party. 
<laughs> so this prison is ripe with corruption on yeah. all levels, it sounds like. Yes. Krupe wrote a deposition uh, from Sicily explaining his ability to have visits at the Milwaukee prison uh, from his wife and to make visits home. He wrote, Over 20 times I went out of the prison in order to go to a dentist and have my teeth taken care of. I asked permission of the deputy who had a guard accompany me. It was during these visits that Krupe was given two hours at his home with his wife. He said he never brought liquor into the jail, but others did, and the prison guards bought and sold the alcohol. Drunken prisoners were put in solitary confinement to sober up. Regarding the other prisoners, he said, each one of us did whatever we pleased as long as one gave something to the guards. The County Civil Service Commission voted unanimously to reject this written deposition because Krupe was an abhorrent character and therefore unreliable. <laughs> Regardless of what everybody else said, we can't, we can't trust this guy. Testimony continued with inmates saying that they never actually saw Krupe intoxicated and they never witnessed him getting any real special privileges. On the contrary, one time he did get solitary confinement for fighting. Some said that bringing in contraband was uh, a skilled task, and you had to be ingenious. One man smuggled pints of alcohol in by placing them in his hollow wooden leg. Another inmate snuck in small amounts of marijuana inside fountain pens. <laughs> One guard said that he had com accompanied Krupe to the dentist a few times and once to his mother's funeral. Um, the guards were told to arm themselves with a revolver on these trips. They said, well, we had, to t we had to carry the gun because we knew that he was wanted by immigration officials for deportation. And if he had escaped, that would have looked really bad for us. <laughs> you know, not that it wouldn't look bad anyway, but knowing that somebody else already wants him when he's done with them. Um, the guards all denied getting any money from him, uh, which, you know, not really surprising. Think, yeah. yeah. With Krupe's claims considered discredited by the board, the investigation was over. And most of the people there kept their jobs. Um, there was a little bit of a shifting around, but no huge makeovers uh, in how the House of, House of Correction worked. So uh, I have a suspicion that most of the stories were true. And probably just kept right on going yeah. after, after this all went down. Yeah, so uh, within three months of this uh, investigation wrapping up, Seven men escaped from the House of Correction. They found the door to the basement unlocked and were able to saw through the thin bars there. Once outside, they stole two cars from the prison garage and drove off. <laughs> so, security's great, this place. <laughs> this is probably why this place doesn't exist anymore, it, to the best it, it of might, our knowledge. It might still exist. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And that's that's pretty much it. What happened to Vincent Krupe after that, I don't know. Like, pretty quiet. Uh, so he apparently lived out his life in obscurity. His nephew, Frank Lugalva, as I said, um, would go on to be a pretty big deal in the local mafia. So we'll talk about him many times in the future. And Bert Stout, the detective who originally was getting in trouble for looking the other way for uh, the brothels, uh, he moved to rural Princeton, Wisconsin. And he spent his final years retiring and fishing and having a good old time in Princeton, Wisconsin. Beautiful little city. Cool. Yeah. So that is the story of Vincent Krupe. I think it's we streamlined this quite a lot from probably the first time. 
And yeah, I, I don't know if I really have any questions. I, I, and so we do not know really if he had any connection, whether they were mafia owned per se brothels that he was running. We don't. And there's some things I could probably do to better look into that. I know for one thing that I did not get the pardon papers. Um, he wasn't pardoned, but you know, like still applying for it and all that. And sometimes that will give you hints because of who will write in letters and supporting you and saying they'll hook you up with a job and that sort of thing. So there might have been a link there. But yeah, but in general, like in the newspaper, no names ever came up that are like known mob guys. Um, so we don't know who he was paying. Really, the only links there are that he's related mm-hmm. to some of these guys. He lives in the Italian community in Milwaukee. He's obviously a, a criminal who should be kicking up money because why would they let that happen? And finally, like, his nephew goes on to be a pretty big deal in the mafia, which would, to me, suggest that he he, he was, this guy also was, and he was, you know, yeah, working with or him. or he had to have some sort of connection. I mean, there's just yeah. too much. Well, but then again, we're we're back in what? What era are late, we? Late 20s, early 30s. So, I mean, the whole Italian community, again, is really small at this point yes. in time. So it is slightly possible that he just happened to know all these people. He was a criminal. I mean, he was it's, doing running illegal businesses. He, he would absolutely know them. Like, that's... There's no doubt of that. But I, I can't, that's what gets me is the... You cannot run this kind of a business... Where everybody, except your wife, apparently, <laughs> everybody knows you're running this business. Like, he would get, if if he wasn't paying up to them, he would be a target of, like, bombs or something. But wouldn't, would something play into the fact that he was so tight, he was related to Aliotto's balustrieries, all these people, I mean, would that play in a role where they would just kind of look the other way and let yeah, him? maybe. And it's funny because, like, normally, as you know, like, I'm always, like, super skeptical. And I'm like, I'm like, show me the facts. But in this one, this is, like, an instance where, like, I'm going the other way on it. And I'm saying, I cannot prove this guy was a mafia member. I just can't. I don't have anything that's, like, clearly there. But it's just so weird to me that he wasn't. Yeah. And so, I would agree with you 100%. Like... There's just too many things that tie him to the mafia, even though there isn't a connection that yeah. specifically shows it. There's too much there that le- yeah. leads me to believe that he had to have been. Yeah. But you never know. You know, it could just be that. You never know. I mean, this is a lot of the things, you know, that that I've I've published over the years. Like, I'd like to go back and kind of like, dig into things a little bit more um whether i ever will or not i don't know because there's really not a point to doing it but now like that i'm aware of a couple sources that i wasn't aware of 10 years ago i'm like ooh, maybe i could get that one little nugget nugget which to the reader you know isn't going to matter but to me i'm like ooh, maybe this is the link i'm missing Mm -hmm. so again like here the one thing i know for a fact exists that i don't have 
is his application for parole. And there might be something in there. I don't know. I'm just curious. What would an application of parole show that you think could tell you something? Like I say, primarily it would be who's vouching for him. Because he's going to write, he or his attorney is going to write in and be like, here's the reasons that I should be pardoned. Mm -hmm. And the governor is going to write their opinion of why he should or shouldn't. But a lot of times, between the asking to be pardoned and then being pardoned or not being pardoned, a lot of people will write in letters or submit things one way or the other. And that's the part that, to me, is interesting. Okay. Like, I I could tell you pretty reliably what he would say about why he should be pardoned. I don't think I'm going to be terribly shocked by that letter. And I don't think I'm going to be terribly shocked by what the governor says in response. But... If a a well-known business owner who I happen to know is a mafia guy, this guy's been really good for the community. we got to get him out. That's where it's going to look really suspicious to me. Again, that's not proof that he's a mafia member, but that would definitely jump out at me more. And I could see that where, and a lot of people might write in with other things that he might they don't necessarily can't prove that he did, but but that person might be saying, like, I'm telling you he did this, and maybe that'll put you in a direction where you could make a connection now with the information you have that shows, yeah, he probably did do that, and if he did do that, yeah. he's definitely mafia. So, yeah, actually, I could see how that would be. That's almost like you going out and interviewing a bunch of people just to collect information but obviously you can't do that because they're all dead right so (laughs) yeah and sometimes you you find some weird things like i don't expect this one to be very weird but there was one it was a case in madison where a guy applied for a pardon and he did not have an attorney and he was not right in the head and, like, one of the the letters he wrote, like, asking to be pardoned, like, you can do, like, a one-page, like, thing, like, here's why, because they're going to look at your record and decide, like, you don't need to really do a lot of convincing. Mm-hmm. This guy wrote, like, a 70-page, like, <laughs> handwritten ramble of, like, how everybody was out to get him, and, like, you got to help me, and, and like, it, it is a bizarre thing, like, I don't know what was going on there, but I don't know if that would convince me to pardon him, but it would definitely convince me that he needs help. (laughs) Well, the prison might not be the right place for this guy. And I would lean towards if he took, sat down and wrote a 70 page letter. Yeah. Maybe two paragraphs of that letter were ever read by anybody. Yeah. And in this decision process, they probably read the first two pages or two paragraphs and said, okay, look at his file. Yeah. We'll make that decision. Yeah. So So, yeah, by the time I got around to doing the Madison book, like then I was like really aware of some of the things that I could look up and like knowing that the pardon files was one of them. And yeah. So I would just do that routinely, you know, I'd be like, see what's in these. And most of them, it's not that exciting. But that was like, what the heck? <laughs> but that's, that's whole outside of this story. But, but anyway, like that's what, it, that's, if there was anything I would add for looking things up, it would be that. I would see like, maybe it would add nothing, but I would like to know. 
Mm-hmm. And now, at one point in time during the podcast, you had said that he went back to Italy and lived his life out, as best you could tell, peacefully. Probably. So, did you do you have a way to go through and like look and see if he ever got into trouble with Italy? Is do you have a system I don't. for that? So I don't. You're just assuming that he yeah. went, he'd like. That's just me saying like hey, he was probably probably <laughs> fine. I don't know. But I know that he didn't come back. Like mm-hmm. he didn't try to be like, "Well, I got deported, but guess what? I'm coming back." That didn't happen. And was that is something like that pretty common for people to do? I don't know if it's common, but it, it happens. And then, it's and definitely it, been known to happen. And is it e- for the most part easy to do? Or it seems like it. Like like you can just literally come back and. I know of a few situations where people have been deported and they came back in. So uh, <laughs> I uh, I. I don't think today that would slide very well at all, but I know of some situations where it has happened. happened. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, I think that'll conclude the final re-record episode. Yes. Um, As always, if you enjoy this podcast, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Uh, You can shoot an email to Gavin at milwaukeemafia at Mm gmail.com. And we will be back with our regularly scheduled podcast program in two weeks thanks everybody for tuning in thank you thanks for tuning in to the milwaukee mafia podcast join us next time for another look back at wisconsin mafia and true crime history Hey entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web post. And that's where HostGator comes in. HostGator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, HostGator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash HostGator today and let your online journey begin.